It's episode eight, y'all, and I've got something pretty special for you. Um, wait, let me do the thing. Welcome to the eighth episode of Hyper Real Film Club Presents Texas Film in Focus. I'm your host, Samantha Ray Lopez, and I'm just so excited. I got ahead of myself. <sighs> We are talking about one of my favorite topics today, and that is women in film and television, and it's going to be a two-parter. So over the next two weeks, you're going to hear from some badass women who are making the industry run in Texas. It's been a few episodes since I've talked about myself, so I figured this would be a great way to tee this one up. <clears throat> after taking a gap year after high school, I moved to Florida to go to film school. Some of y'all might be thinking, I thought she went to UT Film School based on this series and all that. Well, let me set the record straight right here, right now. I did not go to UT Film School. I am not a UT Film grad, despite posing as one to get into some virtual panels in the past. If someone is listening to this who is in charge of those panels, sorry, I guess. Anyway, I went to Full Sail University in Orlando, and I want to make it very clear that my gap year was nothing like Millie Obama's version, where she got to intern on the set of Lena Dunham's TV show Girls. My gap year was spent working full-time in a movie theater and attempting to figure out how to go to film school. I'm a first-generation college grad, so navigating the applications and financial aspects of all of that was, like, super overwhelming and intimidating, to say the least. That whole year was such a scramble, I barely remember it. But as we know, the American student loan system is predatory, so some stranger allowed me to pull out a bunch of loans as a teenager, and I made it to school. I'm not bitter. I was so excited to finally make it to Florida and just get started. Um, but something that I hadn't thought about was the makeup of my peers and how that would impact my trajectory. It didn't take long for me to realize that I was different. I was at a private out-of-state university with a majority white population, and many of those attending the school came from families who didn't have to struggle with figuring out FAFSA paperwork and having conversations with student loan lenders and working a full-time job for a year before they could even make enough money to move halfway across the country. I felt most different when I took a look at the people who made up my cohort. There were close to 100 people who made up my class, and I was one of four women, and the only woman of color. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, there's probably more women on campus, right? Somewhere. I had hoped the same thing. But I went to a school where most of their degree programs at the time focused on traditionally male-dominated fields, such as recording arts, game development and design, and of course, film production. Despite the amazing relationships I built with the men in my cohort, time and time again, I was singled out during my time there. From being called the girl instead of my very easy nickname, Sam, to taking on more work to prove myself, there were way too many instances where I was reminded that I was not like them. I was the other. One time, one of our instructors was filming a feature film somewhere in Florida. I can't remember exactly where, but thought it was the coolest thing to be a production assistant on a horror film on location. We heard that that night they were going to do this like fake rain scene, and I was really eager to see how they pulled it off. My roommates and I, they were all boys, we signed up so that we could get some experience. We all had the same level of skill. I mean, to be honest, maybe I had a bit more, um, and I was also older than them. But as soon as we got to set, the assistant director, who coincidentally was also named Sam, looked at us, pointed right to me, and said, you, you're in charge of Crafty. 
For those of you not familiar with on-set lingo, craft services is the team of people in charge of the food, a super critical and valuable part of the production. But at the time, I felt that he saw me as the woman in the group and immediately relegated me to tasks that aligned with his interpretation of what I should be doing. He literally sent me to the kitchen. I did my job, I did it well, and I did it so well, the assistant director made me in charge of wrap duties the next two nights that I was there. Wrap is when everything is done filming and you have to wrap up, so it's a pretty big job coordinating all the departments, especially when you're shooting on location. That made me feel like I was finally seen. It was awesome. And on the last night on my way out, he said to me, great job. What's your name again? I couldn't help but take a pause. He couldn't even remember my name, and my name is the same as his. I said thank you and got into the car with my friends, and I was quiet on the way home thinking about the fact that this was going to continue to happen, as it has been happening the whole time I've been in film school. This was one of the many instances of which my being a woman was a thing to some people. And as I found other women in the industry and found more community over the years, I realized that my experience was not unique to me. I share this story because I was not something that I realized until very recently and that this experience has also contributed to my own internalized depression and doing the work to break that down has really required a deep look at myself and my past. And while this is a very mild example of sexism on set, I felt that it was important to share because it's been part of my kind of uh, realization journey. Now that I'm on the other side of that and I'm a raging feminist, y'all know that I had to do an episode about smashing the patriarchy, right? The reason this is a two-parter is because as I conducted these interviews, it became more and more prevalent that there are women at the helm of many organizations that are major players in the industry. Austin Film Society, run by a woman, Rebecca Campbell, and a large percentage of female staff. Austin Film Festival, run by a woman, Barbara Morgan. South by Southwest, Janet Pearson is a woman, and she's the director of film there. Texas Film Commission is a majority female staff. The film commissioner in San Antonio is a woman. Elizabeth Avian is the co-owner of Troublemaker Studios, woman. And those are literally just off the top of my head right now in the moment. What's interesting, though, is that while there are so many women bosses in Texas, the industry overall isn't seeing impressive numbers in terms of gender parity. According to the Women in Film Annual Report, women represent 51% of the U.S. population, and women of color represent 17% of the population. In television, though, 31% of key behind-the-scenes positions are held by women, and that's 20% in film. Less than 1% of directors are women of color. Let's talk on-screen. The Center for the Study of Women in Film and Television reports that the percentage of top-grossing films with female protagonists dropped dramatically from 40% in 2019 to 29% in 2020. Regarding race and ethnicity, the percentage of black females in speaking roles declined from 20% in 2019 to 17% in 2020. The percentage of Latinas increased slightly from 5% in 2019 to 6% in 2020. A whole percentage, y'all. There was an eye roll sound effect that would be inserted right here. Let's talk to some people who know what they're talking about. Mirasol Enriquez is someone who you should remember from the previous episode. We dive into a few more topics around production culture and Latina filmmakers, which is her expertise. What does it look like on set for women? I mean, honestly, I have my own personal experiences, but how can we break this down a bit more critically? Um, you know, I think people people tend to understand, you know, 
making a film is complicated. It takes lots of, you know, people, there's lots of different things involved, but a lot of my work really is based around interrogating um, film production culture, meaning that there are all kinds of rituals and behaviors. There are cultural practices among filmmakers, um, you know, within the industry that, that really affect what ends up on the screen. So, you know, filmmakers, they form relationships and develop certain kinds of behaviors. They make sense of their own experiences within certain industrial contexts, um, political climates, and all kinds of things, right? There may be all kinds of, you know, certain kinds of unwritten rules that apply in certain contexts, but not necessarily in others. Um, you know, uh, thinking like, for example, if there is a culture where, um, you know, sexist jokes are totally tolerated and, or, or maybe they're not, right? Or how do women participate in all of that? Or, or do they? What happens if they don't, right? That's thinking about this idea of the, what's the culture on the set. So I think really looking at each production as being unique, but I mean, I really think that um, being, being really attentive to the unique nature of what each set looks like is really important. But I would say like in terms of Texas, um, I think that part of what is really special about what happens here is that the culture is, you know, or the cultures really um, are very different here than somewhere like Hollywood, right? And I think that translates to what ends up on screen. Again, going back to the, the kind of work that I've done, so I think about somebody like Efrain Gutierrez who directed the first Chicano feature, um, Please Don't Bury Me Alive, and, and several films you know, after that. But um, you know, he tried to go into Hollywood and being an actor and was really disappointed with all of the stereotypes and whatnot, um, and came back to Texas and decided to make his own film, you know, really to depict the community that he knew here you know, in San Antonio. Um, and it was a very much a learn as you go kind of endeavor. Um, and so, and there were all kinds of people from different segments of the community that came together to get the film made any way they could. So, you know, were there flawed characters? Yeah. Is the film flawed? Yeah. Uh, but it got done and it told a very different story about a community that you never saw. Um, you know, and I, I'd say really you don't see even now, right? Um, in a feature, right? And so it's a really grassroots production. The goal was just to tell the story that had not been told, however you can get it done. And so, you know, looking at the specifics of all those relationships that came, you know, into play on a film like this, where so many people were involved and you were just like, again, sort of learning as you go. Um, that's what I mean when I think about, when I'm talking about production culture, right? So what did it mean, for example, that um, Gutierrez's romantic partner at the time, Josie Faz, was involved in making this film. How is she involved? Does she get credit? Why? Why not? Um, you know, in what way? Um, so that's one relationship, for example, um, and there are many others. Interestingly enough, Mirasol has some published works on this very example. In the article titled Josefa's Traces of a Tejana in Chicana and Chicano Film History, Mirasol discussed the idea of a symbiotic model of authorship. A piece of the abstract reads, Foz received no screen credit for many of the production roles she filled, the most significant being that of the producer on the first Chicano feature film, Please Don't Bury Me Alive by Efrain Gutierrez in 1976. Symbiotic model makes visible creative contributions of filmmakers such as Foz, who do not occupy designated roles, like director or writer, traditionally associated with authorship. Later in the article, Mirasol explains the following. 
Of particular interest to this inquiry is the role that Chicana filmmaker Josie Faz played in the making of these historic Chicano feature films, which were products of a male-dominated industry and movement, for the significance of her contributions has been overlooked time and time again. Here, when she's talking about these historic Chicano films, she's talking about the ones traditionally credited towards Efrain Gutierrez. One more piece I want to call out real quick, and then you can read the rest. I'm going to put the link in the show notes to this article. She says... In the end credits of the films, Foz is acknowledged as an actor for Please Don't Bury Me Alive, for sound and acting in Amor Chicano Es Para Siempre, and as an executive producer and main camera person on Run Tecato Run. Other evidence shows that she served in a variety of additional production capacities that the credits do not capture, the most prominent being that of a producer on Please Don't Bury Me Alive. The omission of Foz's name from the additional credits means that audiences will always be in danger of overlooking the significance of her contributions to the films. Rare are the accounts that celebrate Foz as the trailblazer she was, and so readers are left with only traces of her story scattered throughout the historical record. This is not surprising considering the male-dominated nature of Chicano cinema, which Chicana film scholar Rosalinda Fregoso discusses in her foundational article, Chicana Film Practices, Confronting the Many-Headed Demon of Oppression. The trend in historiography in the decades following has leaned away from master narratives and toward incorporating cultural and social histories and multiple subjectivities that have long been ignored. The struggle to include Chicana, such as Josie Faz, in the history of Chicano filmmaking, however, continues. In my discussion with Mirasol, she also talks about another familial relationship that has made a significant impact on the Texas indie film scene. And Elizabeth Avellan and Robert Rodriguez, who you know, started Troublemaker Studios here in Austin, again, this is another really great example of you know, people who did not want to do, they didn't want to do things Hollywood style, right? Um, and they're both super family-oriented, really driven. Um, and as they made their way into the industry, they decided not to go that Hollywood route, right? To, to, to come back to Texas and, and do it uh, from here in Austin. And they created a real film family here in Austin. Um, at the, and at the same time, right, they were raising their own family at that time. And they sort of converted their family right into a, a sort of business model in some ways. So, you know, super resourceful. Um, you know, and, and trading in those big budgets to keep so much creative control over the films. And of course, still always keeping their, their business partners in mind and making them money, of course, is absolutely a business, but it's not at the expense of that, that film family. That's a different kind of culture, right? Um, uh, and, and Elizabeth Avellan, you know, was incredibly um, influential in terms of, of creating that culture, right? And there's a, an incredible sort of generosity um, both with resources, but also generosity of spirit that really inspires all kinds of trust and loyalty. And then how does that play out when it comes time, you know, when it comes to your crew and how they come together and how they work together when you have that kind of vibe, right? I mean, that is, that's what I mean when there's a, there's a certain kind of uh, culture um, um, that I'm, that I'm thinking of. And I think that what happens here in Texas is something very different. And I think looking at the specific of how those things operate, um, is just really special, right? Um, and, and there's just this sort of commitment to telling these stories, um, you know, uh, certain kinds of stories that we don't usually see and sort of common interests, right? Um, a certain kind of sort of space um, that just 
makes room for different kinds of stories. And so when it comes time to go into Hollywood, you don't have as many um, women filmmakers to draw from. Um, and history has shown, right, that a lot of times, like, it's women who give women other opportunities. Um, if there are not already people in positions of power to give women opportunities, well, it's, it's, a, it's a never-ending cycle. So you mentioned, um, you know, women hiring women and women giving each other the opportunity to be working within the industry. What are your thoughts on Latinas supporting each other in the film and creative space? Have you observed that happening? What does that dynamic kind of look like in, in your experience? I mean, I think it's just really important, of course, to find your to find your crowd, you know, um, find the places where you don't feel judged, uh, where you feel like you can make mistakes and you can learn and where you can be you um, and, and, you know, find your voice because you have the stories to tell, right? So in, in terms of the support, um, that means Latinas supporting each other in the creative space. And also, I would also say outside of the space is really important, right? So I would say to really try to think outside of the box when you think about who are the people who you want in your creative space, but think about also outside of that traditional creative space, right? To think about like, we are all creative beings in some way, right? And you never know who is going to have something to offer, um, who might be your best partner in crime that they just didn't know it yet, right? Um, you know, I think in so many ways, like, um, you know, nobody wants to be limited, right? Um, filmmakers don't want to be limited. And I would say to, not to limit yourself either by putting other people in boxes and, you know, to think outside of what you think that they can do and how you can work together. Um, I think I've been really inspired by what I see happening here in Austin among Latina filmmakers really supporting each other, right? So um, it means not only supporting filmmakers in terms of, oh, I'm going to, you know, help you out on your film and, um, but also people giving other people opportunities to flex some new muscles, getting them opportunities to try new things so that they grow and they rise up together, right? Um, so it's really about like taking risks on each other and, and rising up together. Um, you know, and, and, and on that note also about this idea of um, finding support, right, outside of the creative space, I would also say like, you know, finding support outside of the creative space is also really important in terms of, um, you know, if you feel supported in other areas of your life, right, you, you end up finding that creative space in your head, you have the confidence, the energy, all the things that you need to, you know, really do your own best creative work. So, just, I'm just saying, think outside of, of, that, of the traditional creative space. Creative, be creative about what's creative. Every time I talk to Mirasol, I'm inspired to go into a deep dive into the topics she discussed. So I'm going to link a few resources in the show notes if you find yourself inspired to chew on some hardcore film research. Someone who has been in the film industry for a number of years is Gail Cronauer, based in Dallas, Texas. She came to Texas in 1979 and has a background in theater. She spent a number of years as an educator and actor and is currently on the board of Women in Film Dallas, the oldest Women in Film chapter in Texas. We had a great discussion about her background and the Women in Film organization, which we'll talk about in the next episode, but wanted to get her take overall on Women in Film from her perspective. Just a heads up, there are some notification sounds and stuff that go off during the interview, so don't think it's your phone or whatever going off. And come on, just ignore it, okay? You know you always do anyway.
What are some other barriers that you see that are unique to women in kind of making it in the industry? Well, you know, we just came out of, uh, well, <laughs> no, we didn't come out of it. We just experienced uh, an explosive couple of years with all of the sexual harassment and assault uh, revelations. Um, I um, was being interviewed by um, a documentary filmmaker earlier this week. Uh, he's doing a doc on a highly regarded, very skillful, um, Oscar award-winning director. And uh, we talked a little bit about um, what his, I was male, what his past had been, what his reputation was. And it was like, yeah, you know, that was going on. I mean, that I witnessed that on the set. I witnessed the way this person talked to me and other women. I witnessed the way certain people of the female persuasion were called into this person's trailer for a conference. I mean, I saw all that. Uh, I was on a shoot one time with a friend and the director was being quite uh, forthcoming in his um, physical behavior with this actress. So that's that was there a lot. Oh, um, you, you know, we need, you need to have a padded bra on. You know, your breasts aren't large enough. So we need to pad you. So, I mean, there's all that kind of stuff. So I think that kind of thing was, um, very much a part of the industry and you know is it changing I, people are so aware of so many things you have intimacy coordinators you know all over the place right now and they're dealing not just with sexual uh, intimacy but they're dealing with emotional int intimacy and if someone coming out of theater theater classes theater rehearsals i mean i've seen people really violated emotionally um, addressed uh, with language, subjected to language that was really assaulting. And I've talked to former students that said, yes, that behavior is why I'm no longer an actor. So that's huge. What other kind of uh, obstacles are there well perceptions like oh you're not strong enough to do that <laughs> you know and I, I just thought that was you're not physically strong enough to do this work I think that women are have been um from the time they were you know kind of young oftentimes drawn to a certain structure certain expectations about life and relationships and oh my god there's a thing about how you're the one who could have the baby so I mean I think all of those things weigh heavily on us and it you have to really weigh all of those things and go yeah well this is what my mom did my sister did my friend did 
but it's not really what I want to do. Do I have the support, the strength, you know, the willpower to make my choice for myself? You no, know, um, I have, uh, you know, my daughter-in-law is a lighting designer, uh, an architectural lighting designer. And um, she and my son are in their late thirties, early forties and have chosen as far as I can tell to have a life that does not include having their own children. They have lots of other kids in their lives and they have their careers. And I still feel there are people who look at that and go, whoa, did you decide to not have kids? Can you not have kids? I mean, I think all that kind of stuff is still, you know, in our brains. And of course, there's a magazine article about it every other day or something on the internet. But we makes it impossible for us to get away from that. I know that there's a mentorship and networking component to Women in Film Dallas. Why do you think this kind of space is important for women working in the film industry? You know, this may be, this may be personal, Samantha, but my experience is in many, uh, in many endeavors, fields, women have worked so hard to get to where they are and they have done it on their own. Uh, and it is the exception rather than the rule. I mean, look at the academy, look at what's going on. The exception rather than the rule to have a woman to really rise in the ranks. Now we'll find them, but again, it's still the exception rather than the rule. And when you're so busy working to advance yourself, it's really hard to go, oh yeah, I want to bring you along too. I don't think it's um, for lack of wanting to. I mean, that's always a possibility, but I think there's just not enough time when you're working so hard. And it's a cultural thing too. I mean, the women are still perhaps in whatever relationship they are, taking care of the home or dealing with family or caregivers for parents or whatever. So I think it's been um, challenging to work all of that out. It certainly was for me. I mean, I'm seeing women who are um, uh, encouraging and advising and mentoring women. I've sat in on presentations that people have done and gone, whoa, what you have to say is fantastic. And so valuable. I hope all these women realize the gift they're being given right now. Uh, because I, you know, I, was just, I was just thinking about this the other day and you know, this whole thing about if you see it, you can be it. Honey, I didn't see it a whole lot. I saw actresses who were my competition for roles, an occasional female director, I'm trying to think of how many. Um, I can count on one hand the number of female directors I've worked with in television and in film. So it hasn't been a lot. Let's put a pin in this conversation because I want to talk more about Women in Film Dallas in part two. So stay tuned for more from Gail next week. Giselle De La Rosa is someone you've already heard from in the Film Festival episode, episode two. She's also a working actor, so she talked with me about her experience in working in Texas, especially in the last year of change. 
you know, I think it's been a little hit and miss. Um, I feel like there are a lot of people that are making work here. Um, I do feel like a lot of people like to work with the same people. Um, and I, I see a lot in my periphery and, um, I'm glad that there's a lot of activity here. You know, when I came here, I remember seeing like the Chronicle for the first time and they were talking about the new studios that were coming into town. And this is like 2007. And then those studios never got built. And I just talked to somebody, I don't know where I was. Oh, I'm in physical therapy because of an accident that I had last month and I needed surgery to correct it. And my physical therapist, I was asking him, like, you know, how long have you worked here? Where are you from? And he was talking about, uh, he's like, oh, okay, so acting. He's like, cool. He's like, I heard that Austin is going to be like the next little Hollywood. And I'm like, I've been hearing that my whole time that I've been here. I'm like, it's a very active community, you know? And, and it's a very... Um, not only is it like active and creating, but then we've mentioned, uh, or we had, when we spoke prior, all of the festivals that I hear, all of the celebrations for film and TV and, and comedy even. So uh, I had run into uh, an actor who I think is based in LA now. And I was like, hey, what's up, dude? We, we did a re reading long time ago. Uh, nice to see you, just wanted to say hi. And, he was talking to another actor that I've never met before, but I see all the time. Um, he books all the time. He's an older white man. And I'm like, fuck, you getting all the, sh all the <laughs> uh, he, he's doing a lot of work. But I, what I loved hearing from him, because I think the, the gentleman that I was speaking to had said something about like, uh, you know, what goes up must come down. Like it's, it's always a ride. You know, if it goes up, it has to come down. And I was like, yeah, I think I'm, 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 then I have to be coming up now. You know, um, I think at the beginning of the year when things were starting to cook, uh, I was working. Um, I had booked a, a handful of things in a row and I was like, Ooh, I'm on a roll. And, and then, um, we kind of, I don't want to say we shifted back, I was like, yeah, I'm not booking. <laughs> I'm like, what is going on? <laughs> so it's very much an up and down for me personally. And, uh, you know, it's a little difficult. I just finished a contract for doing some industrial work, uh, like a teleprompter work, which was my first time. And that was really cool. And that was from a previous um, director that I work with who called me up and was like, hey, you want to do this? So like, I get those calls sometimes. And uh, I love those calls. Um, there are a handful of people that I've worked with that will call me back again, which again, I love. But, uh, you know, I, I, I think this is also the place where if you want to be seen, then you need to create that work yourself. Uh, you know, when you have a family, um, I'm not saying, I know other people do it with families and, and good for them. But um, for me, I, I feel like I don't have the capacity to do both at the same time. And as we were coming out of the pandemic and having to be at home all the time, it's like, where do I want to put my energy? What's important? And uh, one of the things that this actor said who does work a lot was, was like, oh yeah, no, at my age, you know, people are starting to <laughs> not be here anymore is like the nice way to say it. And, and I was like, cool. Yeah. I'm counting on like staying till the end. And, 
just waiting people for for them to like give up a little bit <laughs> so that I can so that they'll be like, oh, all we have is Giselle. Fine. We'll work with Giselle. <laughs> I'm always interested to hear about how the pandemic has posed very different challenges for everyone in the film industry, especially those who aren't traditionally represented. Kristen Stevens is a narrative and documentary filmmaker currently based in Austin, who I found through the Brown Girls Doc Mafia directory. BGDM is a nonprofit whose mission is to bolster the creative and professional successes of women and non-binary people of color working in the documentary industry and to challenge the often marginalizing norms of the documentary field, in case you're looking for something of the sort. I've had the pleasure of being involved in the group for a few years now, and they're doing really great stuff and truly making moves. I talked with Kristen about her career as a filmmaker and really just had a great conversation about working in film in Texas. So you are originally from Philadelphia. What brought you to Texas and how have you seen kind of a difference between uh, working in Texas and elsewhere? Yeah, so I moved to Texas to start um, the MFA program at UT Austin in film, film production. And um, prior to that, I had more editing experience than anything. When I was working in Philly, um, I kind of got into film by way of grad school, always in grad school. <laughs> but I started working with an anthropology professor, John Jackson, and he makes films about the diaspora. And so while I was there, I ended up, you know, like trying to freelance, trying to figure out how this whole thing works. And I would say it wasn't until I moved to Austin that I really have had more industry experience. Um, so, yeah, I think Philly's different in that it's it's very it's a very homegrown film scene, and I think if you want to work in the industry and you live in Philadelphia, you're probably traveling to New York a lot because it's pretty close. Um, but I think it's full of a lot of like interesting independent filmmakers and DPs um, that I think is getting bigger. Like the more I go back, the more I meet people that um, are in film there, and that's exciting. So what is your experience being at UT and living in Austin, which is one of the largest cities experiencing a fast decline of the African-American population? How has that been working in that kind of institution in a city like this with your specific focus on the African diaspora and gentrification? Yeah, it's interesting. <laughs> um, I So when I got here, I... I our first, the first year of this program, we make two films. So we make one doc and one narrative film. And so we're kind of thrown into the weeds. Um, like we're supposed to come into the program with a, an idea about what doc we want to make. And I was like, I don't know where I am. <laughs> like I don't know anyone here. I have no, really no clue. But one thing I read was that Austin had been gentrifying for years. Um, and already kind of started with the smaller black populations. So I ended up focusing on East Austin and, um, and started talking to people about their experiences living in East Austin and how it was changing. And I ended up meeting a number of black people who would tell me, you know, I've been here for 20 years and now I can't afford to live here. So it was very, depressing. <laughs> um, there and, and, you know, not unlike a lot of other cities in the States where Black populations are being pushed out, but I think to move from a very Black city to a city where it's 
just very rare to see people that look like me and particularly in an industry where there are already few black people, you know, it just means that like, I am often the only black woman, you know? And so it's, I think what was um, motivating about that is that I could make work about it, you know, that I actually have like a venue to express, um, express like my feelings around it, but also was able to work with the community here and help to kind of uplift their voices on what, what's been going on. Um, but it's different. It's, it's absolutely <laughs> a different experience being in Texas um, and being in a city where there's just a pretty small, and like you said, declining black population. Uh, it's hard. It's a hard industry to work in. Um, I think it is hard to be a black woman in film. Um, I think, you know, kind of like I said, it's, there aren't a lot of people that look like me in, in places that I like occupy in the industry, like on set. And I think to understand that, like, or to encounter people that have expectations of what I do or what I can do, I think uh, all women can relate to, you know, being expected to be the producer, being expect to be, expected to be the AD, not necessarily in camera. But I think then being a Black woman and kind of confronting an industry that's like heavily, heavily populated by white men and an industry that like just has different rules than, <laughs> than other, I guess, other fields. Like I kind of came into film from a different field. At, you know, I knew I could work nine to five and leave. And I knew that like there were standards around um, equity and inclusion and diversity that were somewhat explicit. And it just doesn't really feel like that necessarily exists in film. And I think, you know, you're working on sets that are independently run by like this person or that person. And so it's been an awakening <laughs> to transition to film. And at the same time, like you know, a big luxury. I mean, I think being able to make art um, by myself and with other people is, is really great. And, you know, if I can get paid to do it, that's, that's incredible. So I think there are like two sides to that coin. Um, yeah, institutions, I think, I think being in school definitely has a, like, there's just such a different experience gained there. Um, that is like more or less beneficial, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> I was told I was encouraged to to not go to film school by some of my friends in film so I think it's like it's been a great experience for me because I love structure <laughs> and I love like having you know some sense of stability or some sense of security but um yeah it's not a direct pipeline into the industry at all um besides like meeting other people who already have connections you know you mentioned earlier that you've um, kind of found support here and a community here. What does that look like for you? And how do you define support for you? I found, I think, people in school as well as through groups like Brown Girls Doc Mafia, um, people that I feel like I can trust and people who like have similar or inspiring creative visions that motivate me to want to work with them the maybe the Austin Texas vibes might be a little more chill than like a New York vibe um just in terms of like the type of creator I might meet and so I think not you know I think I've encountered like people who seem 
like very competitive <laughs> about the work that they're creating and doing that like hasn't really been an experience here. I think I've had for the most part really great like encounters meeting other creators um, and people who are motivated to make things happen even if the the money isn't there or even if like you know the means aren't totally readily available it's like well I we, we want to do this so let's do it and let's figure it out so that's been really cool and then I think support like being in a room with other students that are going through the same things is really nice so I think in some ways like it's just been uh like other grad students and even undergrad students that I work with and um other and people think there's just like a standing among a lot of people of color, particularly women of color um, or non-binary folks, like people that don't identify as women or men. Like, I think the understanding of we know what it's like not to be seen fully, able to find like comfort and support among, you know, those friends and those people who I've, who I've encountered just because of that like pretty common understanding that I think is singular um and shared like among us so so yeah I think there have been levels of like emotional support um that I've been able to experience here walk us through the decision making process when you chose to go into filmmaking in undergrad I studied English and art and I remember having like a really charged conversation with my parents who are you know black people who grew up poor like really and worked for everything that they had and my mom was like why are you majoring in art that's not going to help you you know that's not going to give you a job that's not and that's not a job for the community like that's not the kind of thing that you know at least in in my family and my background you know not necessarily seen as something that's helpful to other people it's in a way like you're doing this for you um what can you do for other people so I think after that, I kind of like, I was like, okay, well, how do I figure out a more socially responsible direction? And that's when I just started trying everything. <laughs> um, and I landed on education. And so I was in school for education when I, um, I took a dot class. It was a um, ethnographic film, ethnographic filmmaking class. And it kind of combined everything that I love everything that I kind of trained in and love about film, which is um, asking questions and uh, creating some kind of image and creating a story, like telling a story. I think the transition was not, it was just, it was kind of hard. I think I realized after having this, um, this gig assistant editing and then trying to break into like videography, um, and I had, you know, I had a few friends who I think were really helpful in that transition, but I was like, okay, I'm going to like PA for this production company and I'm going to do this and that. So I was piecing things together and then decided to get a full-time job until I started school to kind of like just to better support myself. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a really awkward transition and it, it was the kind of transition that was eye-opening, you know, like, oh, I can't just be a filmmaker. <laughs> Because <laughs> I, I want to be like, oh, I have to work, you know, I have to figure out how to do this and, and learn. Um, so in ways, like, school has been great. Um, 
personally, um, just to help smooth that transition and, and help me kind of figure out like who I am and what stories I want to tell. And how, um, how has that kind of manifested in the work that you are creating? I'm working on a couple of films now. Um, I'm working on a short narrative film about um, a girl who comes to realize she's a magical Negro. <laughs> um, and that, I've, I haven't like directly tied that premise to my experience here, but I, it's absolutely been inspired by that. <laughs> um, and then I'm also trying to, to elaborate on the doc that I started making um, when I first got here um, in East Austin and working with community members because displacement, housing and displacement are like continued problems in the area. So I'm trying to kind of elaborate on that. And then, um, and then I'm working on a family doc that doesn't really directly feel tied to Texas. Um, but those are, kind of, those are my kind of current focuses. Something that each of our guests today mentioned was some kind of group or organization that they found to be of support to them. In part two, I'll talk to a few people who are creating these groups and collectives to lift each other up in such a male-dominated field. This is going to be another lightning roundless episode, but next week I'll be doing a little something special on Instagram when part two drops, so you can check that out then. Thanks to Mirasol Enriquez, Gail Cronauer, Giselle De La Rosa, and Kristen Stevens for contributing to the episode. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Lopez. that's S-R-A-E-L-O-P-E-Z, and follow Hyperreal Film Club on Instagram at Hyperreal Film Club, or at the website hyperrealfilm.club. Thanks for listening to episode eight of Hyperreal Film Club Presents, Texas Film in Focus. Stay tuned for the next one where I'll talk to more people about another aspect of why Texas is such a vibrant film community that breeds great stories and highly skilled talent. Texas Film in Focus is produced and hosted by me, Samantha Ray Lopez. Our editor slash sound designer is Laura Rivero. And our podcast admin assistant is Chloe Carcamo. Special thank you to Hyper Real Film Club for letting me do whatever I want. And of course, the Texas Commission on the Arts.